The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Today, it is just myself, Mike Rankin. I'll be your host with James Fox, senior writer at Future Sox. It's a special edition of the Future Sox Podcast today because the regular season ended in 2020. The 60-game campaign, the sprint, so to speak, James, finally has come to conclusion. However, I say finally because, you know, people look at the 60-game season and consider it you know, okay, 60 games, it's a sprint. Like, I look at the San Diego Padres. Do they finish where they stand today? I mean, you could argue yes, but, I, I, like, it's one of those examples. Are they this good across 162? Are the White Sox this good across 162? Are the Cubs this, you know what I'm saying? So, let's back it up. 60-game season finally ends, and we call it a sprint. However, I wouldn't consider it that much, James, because at the at the start of things, it was a normal process. Players reported to camp in February, and then the season got shut down. It got ramped up again, and then here we are now as the October months approach and the postseason starting. So to me, I I still feel like this is a full season despite just 60 games on the slate. Love to kick off the conversation with your take on that. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the 60-game season was interesting, obviously, and and the thing that made it really interesting was – you know, like in the light of a pandemic, obviously, but the regional based schedule kind of makes everything weird. And then the seating, you know, is just like a little bit strange too, right? So 35 and 25, I think everybody would have taken. Um, it sounds like a cop out, I think, because you finished two and eight, right? They were like 33 and 17 and the number one seed in the American League. And we can talk about how important that actually is. But I mean, yeah, like they, they sputtered down the stretch a little bit, but you know, they also do have the fifth best record in the American League and the best run differential. Now they haven't played anybody in the East or the West. So I think, you know, you you kind of have to like parse through like some of those numbers. But, you know, I do think, you know, it's kind of like something that I've heard you touch on. You know, they're, they're handing out a trophy at the end, so you might as well win it. Like I actually, you know, you could make the argument that it's like tougher to win, you know, a title in a season like this because of like all the stuff that they've had to deal with throughout. So you know, I, 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 I'm of the mind that, you know, basically what's occurred, like, doesn't really matter that much. And it all kind of starts over for Tuesday. I'm not a big, like, momentum carries over, like, you have to go in hot, like, type of guy. But, like, you know, I, I think they have as good a shot as anybody right now. And that, you know, obviously without fans in the stands, like, that, that's probably going to help their cause, too. I just think it's such an exhaustive effort all across Major League Baseball for the 2020 campaign, for people to consider this as just, you know, let's let's put an asterisk by the title. I don't know. Like, at first, I was like, okay, maybe. And you touched on a very important point there when you mentioned that they're playing the same teams over and over again across, you know, 10 teams. That's, that's fair to mention for sure. But, you know, overall, when you're talking about all of the variables that come into play here, every organization is dealing with it. And if we look at the White Sox specifically – I think they've done a masterful job of not only incorporating the necessary types of talent, the big league talent to win a spot in the postseason. Now they ranked seventh. They earned the seventh spot. And like you touched on, they earned a playoff spot about a week and a half prior to the end of the regular season. 
However, they finished 35 and 25. That's good for the seventh overall seed. And we'll get into the standings as we continue the conversation here, but I'd love to stick on this real quick. As the White Sox were, at the start of this thing, ready to develop the organization to the point, because I think it's important to understand, yes, they invested financially in the in, in free agency, and then they went out and got a guy in Nomar Mazzara to try and shore up a position of need. However, it's a matter of now with the variables, like this is a wait and see type of season. And the White Sox came out and they played to expectations and even, I guess, played above some of many, right, James? Because like you have all of these expectations after the offseason highlighted by the Dallas Keuchel and Yasmani Grandal signing. But at the end of the day, when you look at it from top to bottom, this is still a, a team that is close to ready, but still in development. And the fact that they're in this position, 35 wins in a 60-game season and a postseason berth, I think that is something to absolutely celebrate. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the bonus here. I think they're a year early. I mean, it's obviously, you know, I, I've seen the comparisons locally to the 2015 Cubs. You know, you're, you're like one year ahead of schedule. But I think even with all the moves they made this offseason, before COVID-19 was like in all of our lives, you know, with a 162 game season, I don't, I don't know how many people were picking the White Sox to make the playoffs, like with five playoff teams. I think people thought that, you know, there was a chance that they could, you know, get hot with a young team and, and get a wild card or maybe sneak in. But I mean, I don't think anybody thought that they had the pitching to withstand 162, right? Even when it went to 60 games, it was like, you know, before they announced the expanded playoffs, I'm not sure anybody was picking them, right? I think everybody was excited, myself included, to watch the team play. I wanted to watch Luis Robert this year. I wanted to see how the team looked. You know, I thought it was like an important year to get on the field, setting up for the next, you know, three, four, five years. But yeah, like I, I think they're, I think they're ahead of schedule personally. And I think while the last week, kind of sucked obviously I you know I think they're I think they're in a pretty good spot now and going forward and they're in a good spot James because their bullpen is healthy I think that's number one uh number two the headliners of the rotation Lucas Giolito and Dallas Keuchel match up against anybody across Major League Baseball I mean they give you a chance to win so that right there gives you optimism that they can make it out of the first round in a three-game set they do like even like this first series is obviously three games you know, they scuffled here down the stretch. They were two and eight, but you know, Keiko and Giolito pitched three times in those ten games. And Keiko only went four innings, I think, the one you know, the night against Cincinnati that he pitched. So, you know, it's not like like it's you know, it's bad if you get into a five or seven game series, like that might indicate to you that you don't have enough pitching to get through it. But I think with Giolito and Keiko on the mound, you know, and then your your back end with Colome Bummer Marshall intact, you have Garrett Crochet, who I'm sure we're gonna talk about more you know, and Hoyer and Foster and, you know, that's your, they have a, a pretty good bullpen. So I, I think, you know, while they are going on the road to Oakland and it's been a house of horrors, right. you know, traditionally, I don't really buy much into like, you know, they've, they've sucked in Oakland in the past. So they're destined to suck now. Like, I don't really, I don't know. I don't really think like that's true, but you know, that's why they're going to like play the games on Tuesday and Wednesday and we'll see. And they have, I think they have as good a shot at like winning that series as, you know, as anybody else would. So it's Chris Bassett, we can assume, Sean Manaya, right? And Frankie Montas, maybe. What do you think? Yeah, so I'm thinking Manaya's probably game one, I think, which is helpful because he's a left-handed starter. I mean, he's a good pitcher, but, you know, I'll take my chance like with the White Sox against any lefty. I mean, obviously they beat John Lester. They were 14-0 and against left-handed pitching, and I think that was, what, the first time, and it's obviously a shortened season, but that's the first time a team has ever like gone undefeated against uh, like a pitcher from the same like handed side. So um, that's pretty interesting. So, I mean, Manaya in game one, I think is a beneficial matchup for the White Sox. And then Chris Bassett, obviously former right. White Sox farmhand, you know, he's been pretty solid too, but I mean, you know, I think you take your chances with going against Chris Bassett instead of facing, you know, the Indians or the Yankees personally. <laughs> and then in game three, Montes threw like 115 pitches on, Friday maybe so maybe that's fears or you know even Jesus Lazardo but yeah I mean it you know it'll be one of those guys hopefully hopefully they have a game on Thursday because that means 
you know, they're, they're still, or, you know, unless they can win the first two games, but if they play Thursday, at least, you know, that's an elimination game. So, so since we're on the topic and we don't want to look past the Oakland athletics, but we, you know, in this, in terms of this conversation, if you expect the white Sox to make a run, you're going to have to get past this three game set and past that, right. Moving forward, you're looking at this bracket, the way the major league baseball playoffs are set up in 2020. Tampa Blue Jays, that's 1-8. You got Cleveland and New York, 4-5. That's the top seeded in, in terms of the, the opposite side of the bracket where the White Sox stand. Sox-A's, that's the 2-7 matchup. Then it's the Twins and Astros. So the winner of the Sox-A's takes on the winner of the Twins and Astros. I'd much prefer to take on either of those teams. I feel confident. I don't know about you, but I feel confident about both the Twins and Houston compared to having to play, say, Cleveland or Tampa after the three game set. Yeah, I think it sets up nicely. And I think that's where seeding comes in. And obviously like, you know, I think first blush, I think you want the White Sox to win the division because it's like, you know, a young team and it would be nice to hang a banner and, you know, whatever. And and even if they were the four seed um, with a win today, you know, you're hosting a playoff game. So, I mean, you could argue that, you know, that that would have been better, but since they're not that, like, you know, I think, I think you could argue it absolutely the other way too, that they're in like the better side. Like you, like you mentioned, um, you know, the Sox have the fifth best record in the American league. They're the seventh seed. So they've actually been better than Houston and New York. They've played different teams, obviously. Right. But the run differential is better. Their winning percentage is better. So yeah, I think, you know, I think you take your chances, with Houston, Minnesota, if you can get out of this first series, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's fun to look at in this scenario because when the playoff, the expanded playoffs were released when they talked about just the logistics of it, I think it was you who pointed out, yeah, a team could get a higher seed with a worse record, and here we are. The Houston Astros finished under five hundred, and they're above the White Sox in the standings. Yeah, I hated it as soon as I saw it. I mean, I get it a little bit because of the regional schedule. Um, but yeah, like you knew that this had, like this could happen, and it's happened, right? So like Houston is under five hundred, right? Aren't they like they're like twenty nine and thirty one or right. something like that? Yes. And you know they played the entire AL West and then the entire NL West, and you know the NL West has two really good teams in it. And the AL West, you know, not so much. Oakland, and then, you know, the rest isn't very good. So they underachieved in, in like, a division that wasn't very good. Now, I, you could argue the White Sox, I mean, the the AL and NL Central is pretty good. There's four NL Central teams in the NL playoffs right now and right. three AL Central teams. Now, you know, could that be because, you know, they beat up on the bottom of both divisions? Like, yeah, I guess a little bit. But, you know, I think those those teams are pretty good, like, overall. So, with the what thirty five and twenty five record, I just think that's pretty good. I, I just think like you know you you have to look, you you can't just like think about this as like oh they fell to the seventh seed because the seeding doesn't really matter now. Like looking at it before, it kind of did, but like now it's right. now it's like the season starts and these are the matchups and you have to just like you know win that game. Like if they were going to Oakland and there was in Oakland Coliseum was like full of people. Like, yeah, I think you could argue that, you know, Oakland definitely has the advantage. The Sox do have to travel, obviously, but with no fans, like, I don't really, I don't really think there's much home field advantage. I agree with you, especially considering now that it's like, okay, playoff start, clean slate, let's, let's reset. But also we get to this point, like, I can't help but feel a little dejected about the way that the White Sox are heading into the postseason just based on, like you said, last week plus I mean that team the effort that they put on the field it wasn't so much as like they just sucked it was as if they just stopped caring like the energy was gone they were making bad plays in the field offensively they they couldn't hit and of course you could talk about the managerial decisions related to the bullpen and Rick Renteria and his style of play but man this team is not like over the last week plus after they clinched against the Twins was totally different from what we were expecting tr from a team that was trying to compete for a division crown. Again, though, it, this happens all the time across a Major League Baseball season. However, it was a little disconcerting to see it happen now. Yeah, and I think I think when you don't hit, and we're obviously like we're used to this team hitting, but when you don't hit, everything's magnified, right? It's kind of like, 
you know, if somebody makes an error at second base or they don't hit the cutoff guy or, you know, like somebody walks a guy when they shouldn't, if you have seven runs on the board, like nobody talks about any of that stuff. Right. But if you have one run, then like all of it's magnified and it all gets talked about immediately. And I think like some stuff snowballed on them. Now I do think, I, I, I think it's unfair to say that, you know, they like let their foot off the gas. I mean, Abreu said they did. So maybe that's like true. But I mean, I think that you go, you went into Cincinnati, right? They started Jonathan Stever, who probably wasn't ready to be starting big league games and he got bombed. And then honestly, like Dylan Cease and Dane Dunning and Ronaldo Lopez, like over the last week, like they haven't been good enough. And like, you know, like there's no rule that says that you have to score all your runs early. But if you're down five, six, nothing like against teams like early on in games, you know, I think I think those are are generally losses. Now the Cleveland series, a little bit different, right? They were right, in yeah. they were in most of those games, and then there were a lot of puzzling decisions that were made, you know. And I I think there's a lot of blame to go around there, but I do think it was kind of like I think the White Sox kind of told you that they didn't really care about seating, and Interesting. they they were going to do everything possible to like test out stuff for this playoff series and to make sure everybody was healthy and to make sure everybody was ready. Um, because some of that was really, really weird. And it, yeah. and it was just kind of like, you know, they really only needed like one win to kind of bury Cleveland. And there were two walk-offs, which, which aren't normal. Um, so, you know, I would never say that like, you know, player, no. players and ma- players right. and managers aren't like trying to lose baseball games, but those games were weird. They were so strange. Yeah, well, I I think you absolutely nailed it. I think the fact that okay, you're locked into the postseason, you're incorporating because the, the really like when you talk about a manager's impact on wins and losses, really can only apply to the way he manages his bullpen or lineup construction, essentially. So we saw the decisions out of the pen that Rick Renteria was making, and you're sitting there scratching your head. And the one that's highlighted and was magnified was the Carlos Rodon with runners on as he comes back from injury first appearance since coming back. And of course we know how that ended. And of course it comes in a big spot against a big team. So you're really reactionary to that point. You're upset about it. And again, too, you're, you're putting Cordero in situations over and over again. They see the organization just completely cut ties with Steve Ciszek and, and well, not completely. They designated both Ciszek and, Ross Detweiler for assignment, but those are telling moves in the grand scheme of things. So it's it's a matter of, yeah, I think what you said there was very true. I think Rick Renteria and the White Sox were saying, what do we have? Who's available? Who can get outs? Jose Ruiz in the ninth inning, you need one out? He couldn't get it, okay? We kind of already knew that Jose Ruiz isn't a, a valuable bullpen arm at this point in his career, just based on the track record. But those are things during a playoff stretch when you're trying to win a division that, like you said, are magnified. And those are just some examples. Yeah, so I think like the Ruiz thing and you know the game where they brought Gio Gonzalez in, I think those are both worse than what happened Thursday. Now, the Rodon part of that, was the most puzzling part. But I heard a lot of like people upset over the Jimmy Cordero part. And like, if you look back on that inning, like that, you know, I don't know if that was the seventh or the sixth, right? But it's the bottom of Cleveland's order. They go to Jimmy Cordero because they thought that, yeah, they thought that he could get out of the bottom half of that inning. Um, and, and, you know, they pinch hit three lefties against him, right? And loaded the bases at that point. So I think Rick Renteria is thinking Jimmy Cordero is like going to face the bottom of the order and get out of this. And then we're going to go to bummer in the eighth for the, for the top of the order, like, you know, in the middle of the order, like for his first appearance. Well, then it all kind of like snowballs on him because, you know, Cordero loads the bases and then going to Rodon there doesn't make any sense. Now he said he didn't want to go to bummer because if he goes to bummer there, then he can't use bummer in the eighth. But I think you probably go to bummer there and you figure out the eighth, like in the eighth, but I don't know. That that was just like a clear sign to me that there was a plan to get Carlos Rodon in for like a hitter to see how he looks. And, you know, like they, they threw him in there to a game that apparently the fans, you know, and observers thought was a heck of a lot more important than they actually did. Because, you know, I think you make those decisions like, you know, that you're trying to win, but yeah, if we don't like, Okay, well, we at least we know that like maybe this isn't the situation for Carlos Rodon to be in next week, 
So, and people really, really didn't like that. So, um, and he took a lot of heat for it. And if you want to blame Ricky for that, like, you know, I, I think we've been pretty fair with him for the most part. Like, I don't think managers matter that much. I think over 60, they matter more than over 162. Um, but that's probably an organizational decision that night, I would think. I don't think Ricky's, like, doing that without other people's approval. Yeah, interesting. Interesting thoughts, at least, to ponder. We could, we could talk about the positives here because let's give Ricky a break for now. Let's see how he is in the postseason when it matters, when it really, really matters. And, you know, we continue to push off our judgments of Rick Renteria. We know the type of manager that he is. So let's look at the positives. A lot of positives, actually, when you look at specifically Luis Robert over the last couple of days. And let's also mention the White Sox ended the regular season by scoring 17 runs over the last two games. So, I mean, that's a positive. That's a plus. And they were down the other night against John Lester and the Cubs, and they came back twice, and they ultimately won that game. So, you know, that's that's a good thing. If they were absolutely just on the ground coming into the Oakland series as the playoffs began, I would have a little bit of, of maybe a different evaluation here. But I think this offense is still they, – they still have so many hitters that can do things individually that sets up the next guy. You know what I mean? That it's contagious. Just get them going. This offense, and let's talk about the offense, as, as we mentioned, positivity and Luis Robert. His 60-game season, I think, was about <laughs> – I, I, how do we explain his 60-game season with, with such a unique prospect that he is, right? We had all of the expectations on top of Robert coming in. He, he blows us away with his athletic ability. He's able to handle major league pitching. Then he goes across a two-week, two-and-a-half-week slump, and now he's kind of getting back into the groove your evaluation of Luis Robert across 60 games. Yeah. So I think obviously like at the beginning, I think he was better than people thought. And I think people had high expectations, but I mean, he was like a legit MVP candidate and then he hit the rookie wall and it took, you know, a while to get out of it. And we talked, I think with every guest we've ever had on, they've talked about the, the issues with his approach and, you know, it's a lot of swinging strikes and it's a lot of swing and miss. And he, you know, doesn't always identify sliders and, once he does, like, it's going to be a big problem. But, I mean, even during this bad stretch, like, he was missing, you know, like, cookies. And he misses, you know, there's there's times where he misses fastballs. Like, he, you know, he hits poorly located fastballs and he hits mistakes, like, really far. And I don't think that's ever going to change. But I do think, you know, it it comes for everybody, right? Like, the, this, like, struggle a little bit. Like, if you look back even – you know, Mike Trout and like some of those guys look back at their rookie year. I mean, they've had, they had three and a half and four week stretches where they were absolutely awful. Like if you like Joey Dell is, is a guy in Anaheim who's like been compared to Luis Robert and he was, you know, he's like one of the worst players in baseball this year. And, you know, I don't know if that's going to stay the same, but I mean, Robert, I, I think, I think it's a success. I think they, you know, they didn't count on him down the stretch, but he's, he's the type of guy where, you know, he could get seven hits and two or three homers in a playoff series. And then all of a sudden you're moving on like because of him, I think. So I, I think it was, I think it was fine. And I think everybody, you know, should be excited to see him play like obviously like over 162 going forward instead of just like this 60. I think it's a major positive that he was healthy all season. I mean, he was held out of the lineup a couple of times, just, you know, for, for minor purposes, but overall was never put on the 10 day or on the IL period. So that's one of those situations for Luis Robert where you're celebrating because a lot of the concerns I think we had coming into 2019 was let's see him put it together for a full minor league season. He did that. It got to a point in 2019 where we were calling his name in September. Sox didn't do it maybe because of service time manipulation, but they got the deal done. So that is out the window at this point. Speaking of that, let's talk about rookie status, James, real quick, because something interesting of note, they're incorporating. Now you need to explain this to me because I only read over it briefly, but they're incorporating rookie status into the postseason this year where game service time is counted towards their rookie status. Can you clarify some of that information? Yeah, so basically the way we look at prospects, right, and we always get these questions. Like anytime we release a top 30 and people are like, why is Michael Kopech still on there? Or why is this guy still on there? So, you know, players have rookie status or, you know, prospect status until they get 130 at-bats in the big leagues um, or 50 innings pitched. 
or 45 days on the active roster, not including September because September is where the rosters expand. So that there was some question this year, like if that was going to stay the same because like rosters never really expanded, right? They stayed the same the whole year. So it came out today. I think it was what Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle or whatever she writes. She said that, you know, the September days will in fact count this year. So, um, you know, I thought it would affect a guy like Nick Madrigal. Apparently he's still not at the 45 days. So I do think, and I'd have to go in and check, like I think Cody Hoyer probably is a guy that like wouldn't be on prospect lists anymore than like if you counted those days because you're talking about um, 27 September days in addition to you know him being on the team in July and August as well. So he wouldn't be a prospect anymore. So something like Robert came off the list um, so just, you know, that's, that's basically all it is, but it's, it's a minor change, but it makes a lot of sense because like rosters didn't expand. These guys were on the teams all year and it, it's really not that big of a deal. Um, it's, it's mostly just for prospect list purposes and like rookie of the year, stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's something interesting of note, especially for us at future socks. And it also, you, you kind of take it into consideration at this point when organizations make the decision to incorporate their rookies. I mean, they're not looking at rookie status. They're, they're looking at service time. And, you know, we've seen an absurd amount of young talent come up and make their debuts this season when they otherwise wouldn't in 2020 if it was across 162. So here we are. Let's continue with the positives. As we mentioned earlier in the show, Garrett Crochet and Jonathan Stever. I'd like to talk Garrett Crochet. A nice little honorable mention for Jonathan Stever, by the way, for him to make his debut, make a couple starts in the big leagues, a guy who only pitched at advanced A. He's got the stuff that will play in Major League Baseball. At the very least, it is a reassurance for a guy who had all the confidence in the world exiting his 2019 campaign. And we were excited about following Stever's progression through the minors. He would have flew through the system this year if he was able to maintain his pace uh, that we saw in 19. And really the highlight of Stever is his strike-throwing ability. I mean, we talk about Julie Brady, our Winston-Salem correspondent. When she would highlight Jonathan Stever's starts for us at Future Sox, she would always mention the pace at which Stever worked and his consistency in the strike zone uh, the way that he attacked hitters. So that is an outstanding positive for the White Sox moving forward. But let's talk Crochet. Garrett Crochet, James, what do you think about the way the White Sox have implemented him in his first season? He pitched four innings in college this year and worked out in Schaumburg with the big league club. And now he is pitching in the big leagues, most likely going to be a part of the mo- a postseason roster in a, in a major capacity. I, I'm fairly confident in suggesting that Garrett Crochet is going to be a big part and why the White Sox, if they do, make a run. Yeah, I, I mean, it's obviously exciting. I thought I thought I was a little bit surprised they did it, honestly. Um, I, I you know, we had a lot of people on that mentioned, right? Like, oh, Garrett Crochet, like he's a guy that could like pitch in the big leagues out of a yeah, bullpen. Maybe. And I just maybe. think that I just like always kind of think that's like something that people just say. And then it just happened, you know, but apparently he was and Jim Callis talked about this on a recent uh, MLB Pipeline podcast. Like he was just awesome in Schaumburg. Like they got him and he was throwing a hundred consistently. And it's not like he's throwing a hundred and like struggling with command. Right. He's just like peppering the zone with a hundred, like over and over and over again. And then he's dropping sliders and, and change-ups too. You know, I, I saw like, you know, the interesting graphic every time that he pitches, right. It's like, he moves up the leaderboard of guys that have thrown pitches over a hundred miles per hour. And I think it's like Brewster Gratterall of the, of the Dodgers, um, and like a couple other guys and they've thrown like, you know, like 50 some pitches, like over a hundred and crochet's already thrown what, like, you know, he had thrown like 35 pitches, like over a hundred miles an hour. He'd only been in four games. <laughs> it was like in four appearances. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's like one heck of a relief weapon, especially like, you know, the A's have never seen him before. So, you know, good luck. I mean, you, it kind of reminded me of, and the sale comparisons like a little bit lazy, but you know, when Chris Sale came out of the bullpen and faced the Twins like that first time, I mean, Joe Maurer told a story about, you know, how he, he saw three pitches and basically went back to the dugout and was like, hey, he throws three quarters and he throws a thousand. Good luck. And, you know, you can look at like opposing hitters faces like when they face Garrett Crochet right now and it doesn't really look very pleasant. You know, like my Anthony Rizzo 
last night, I believe, was just, you know, kind of gave it the old, all righty. Well, I, yeah. you know, I don't really want to face him ever again. So, sure. you know, so, you know, one of the big Gary Crochet storylines will be stuff that we talk about on this podcast, like after the season ends and the entire off season, like what they do with Garrett Crochet. That I think that'll be like a big talking point for us. So, you know, we can save it for then, but you know, right now, yeah, he's, he's in the bullpen and he's on this, in this playoff bullpen. And I think he could be, you know, a big time weapon that we probably weren't expecting a week ago. How about this, James? Sox move past the first round. You know, you're getting into series more than three games. Could Garrett Crochet fill in as a starter, potentially? I think in an opener situation, potentially. But, I mean, what, he could maybe go three innings max at this point. I think, they, I think they've just been having him max out and throw 100, you know, and it's not super high effort. Um, he was stretched to be a starter at Tennessee, but, yeah, he just probably hasn't thrown enough innings to start. But, I mean, you know, is that what you do, or is it better to – you know, announce Matt Foster as a starter and have a team load their lineups with lefties. And then you bring in crochet in the third and mow through all the lefties, you know, maybe you get a little bit, you know, creative. That's, you know, the brewers have done that and the Rays and some of these other teams that kind of have to, right. Cause they don't have enough pitching, but honestly the Sox this year, like they might have to do something similar because, yes. you know, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but I don't know who the game three starter should be. And if they advance, I think the, you know, the next round is five straight days of baseball. So, you know, once you get past Giolito and Keiko, like they might have to patchwork some pitching there. So, yes, I, I think bullpen days are are probably going to happen, and I think he'll be like a heavy focus of those bullpen days. So what I was feeling about that situation, too, is you're thinking about game three. Who's going to start? I mean, you're leaning Dane Dunning, but still the inconsistencies there He's only pitched however many innings since he's returned from injury. And that's not even accounting for the fact that, like, we should even also mention he hasn't pitched above double A in his career prior to this. And again, he's 25 years old going on 26. So the guy is old enough, of course, to be ready in his development. However, just in terms of actual on the field presence, right? He hasn't, he's been hurt. And so the whole process for Dane Dunning there, you have to take it. Uh, day by day, I guess, in, in simplest of terms, when I'm trying to describe Dane Dunning, because you got to evaluate him start by start. You know, there are things when I was blown away by his composure and his opener uh, in his debut. I thought he looked great. And even in game two, his second start, I thought he looked fantastic. But then, you know, stuff come, comes back to earth and you start uh, leveling off a little bit. But I think Dane Dunning right now is the headliner because I don't feel confident in Dylan Cease. I don't feel confident in Reynaldo Lopez. But when when you talk about a Game 3 potential headliner, Eileen Matt Foster, you mentioned him. I thought that he would, because he's done it already across the season. I feel safe starting Foster. And it's not even like considering him to go a certain amount of innings, like you want him to hit a certain innings threshold. Just get you through in terms of number of pitches that he can handle, evaluate the way he's working on the mound, see how his stuff is playing, and, and and allow him to work, right? Don't limit him. Okay, two innings, done. Cut him off, get somebody else in. Look at the way that he's working on the mound. So I feel like Matt Foster's a great candidate, despite never starting in the minor leagues, to start a postseason game. And then, like you said, follow up with the Garrett Crochet. Yeah, and, you know, they have Carlos Rodon, too. Like, I don't think that they're going to – like say Carlos Rodon's the game three starter and he's going to go like six innings or something. But if you think that Dunning can get you through the top, the order once, you know, maybe you have Carlos Rodon to like piggyback off of him for two innings. And then you have Garrett Crochet sitting there too. And, you know, if it's a team full of lefty hitters, I, I you know, I haven't looked up and down the Oakland lineup, but they do generally have their fair share of, you know, platoon players, right? Like they, they create, 850 OPS guys using two players generally. So, you know, I'm assuming that that's what most of their lineups are going to be. Obviously Matt Chapman is out for them. So, you know, there, there's, there's going to be an opportunity to, to play games like that. And it's interesting because we've never really seen the White Sox do that sort of thing. Like they, they were against openers for whatever reason, but now, you know, it kind of seems like they would be open to the idea. Rick Hahn was on 670, Saturday morning, and I think he gave a pretty good indication that they could just do a bullpen day if they wanted to on that third day, if, if it came to it. So, 
I don't, I don't really think it's the worst idea in the world if you told me like, oh yeah, they're just using a bullpen game in game three because their bullpen's really good and they have a lot of guys down there. You're probably going to have 10 or 11 pitchers down there. Yeah, it's a part of that conversation. I think now that you mentioned, of course, Rick Hans even talking about this openly, I think they're seriously considering that. And I feel safest. I don't know about you. I, I feel pretty good about the White Sox incorporating a bullpen day in game three as long as it lines up accordingly. If you're not riding the bullpen in either game one or two, you know, and you can afford to do that because you assume that Giolito can carry a Keuchel, the veteran. What a year, by the way, Dallas Keuchel's had with the White Sox. So I, I don't know. We could dive into the Dylan Cease conversation because I have a couple things that I'd like to mention with him. But just overall right there, I, I feel pretty good about a bullpen day in game three if it comes down to it. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way they lean. I, I'm going to be interested. Like, I'm sure they'll announce the playoff roster tomorrow, and then everybody will dissect it and kind of see what they're going to do. But they're not – I mean, they're not going to announce a Game 3 starter until, you know, probably Thursday, I would think. Yeah, I don't know why you right. would – I don't know why you would bother, you know. I mean, especially if, you know, like if Giolito can go eight and get you a win and then maybe you lose the Keuchel game, but you have all your relievers available, maybe that changes the plans. So I, I think it's just going to be fluid here. Um, as the week goes on, I am kind of curious. I don't know if, you know, Gio Gonzalez was necessarily going to be on the playoff roster, but I feel like he won't be now after getting hurt again yeah, today. I mean, that so, looked pretty serious. Yeah, I think, yeah, he looked, you know, he kind of looked like he knew he was probably going to be done. And I don't know, you know, if you're relying on Gio Gonzalez in a playoff series anyway, you're probably in trouble, but I just don't know what that does, like, roster-wise. They, got, they have a lot of choices and a lot of decisions to make. Let's talk about Dylan Cease a little bit. Uh, a cause for concern I am seeing a lot is his fastball. People talking about how straight it is. I don't know about you, but I think it's a good thing that his fastball is straight. Because we're talking about, even before the season, one of the things that we wanted to focus on was Dylan Cease's fastball, the way he commands that pitch. And the command's not there. That's really the issue. The command has been lacking across his career. And that has really played into account this season where he isn't striking guys out. He's not getting a lot of swing and misses. He's still throwing a lot of pitches per plate appearance, and he's giving up a lot of hard contact. But with the fastball, I think it's part of the developmental process of where Dylan Cease is professionally at this point as a major league pitcher. Because if you start the season with the conversation, Dylan Cease wants to take away the cut on his fastball. Okay, so what does that mean? You want to make sure it's straight. He's got it straight but he's making it very hittable because he's missing his spots. So I think it's a positive, despite the optics of it looking as, as if it's a negative. I think this is a step closer for Dylan Cease to get better. I don't know about what, how you feel, James. Yeah, I think it might be a step closer, but I don't know how much time they have, right? Like right. it's not, right. you know, it's not 2017 anymore. So it's true. Like if you're going to rely on young pitchers, like they take a while, like Dane Dunning's going to have issues. Dylan Cease is going to have issues. Like, Michael Kopech's probably going to be in the rotation next year, and he might have some issues too, right? But you have to kind of serve two masters to the point where you're trying to win baseball games and develop young pitchers at the same time, and some guys are probably going to get left behind because of it, right? So maybe Dylan Cease flourishes uh, somewhere else with a team that can afford to like just keep giving him starts because I'm just not sure. I don't know how long they can wait um, to – you know, for him to get it right. His stuff is so good, but he doesn't miss enough bats. Like that was like a concern earlier in the year too. Like he doesn't strike out enough people. And I know, look, like you look at the e the ERA and it deceives you a little bit, you know, and some people, you know, it's like, Oh, he's got a three twenty five ERA. Like he's fine. But like, you know, if you watch him pitch, like it's not fine. Like, I don't know how many strikeouts he was averaging this year. I don't know. Is it even like six per nine? I, I mean, thought, I, you know, I thought it was under seven. Yeah. Like he's a guy that should be averaging 10 punch outs like per nine, like with the stuff that he has. I'm going to look it up and right he's, now. And James. he's, you know, like, can he model himself after Giolito a little bit? Um, maybe. And he's, you know, he's been going out of the stretch a lot more, but he just like doesn't throw enough strikes to do that. So it's, you know, the, all the talk about his fastball, I think you're right. But until he throws strikes consistently, like it doesn't matter what the shape of his fastball is, I don't think. Yeah, see, you look at it just straight up, 58 in the third innings, 44 strikeouts, 
34 walks. Yeah. 34 walks and 58 in the third combined with 44 strikeouts. That's not getting it done. That's a strikeout per nine, 6.8, under seven. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's a lot of prospect evaluators. Like, we've had Kylie McDaniel on and Eric Longenhagen. Those two guys, like, have always kind of thought Dylan Cease was a, you know, eventually a reliever. Whereas others have said, you know, definite top of the rotation starter, depth of the, like, top of the rotation stuff. And I think... I think it just depends, right? Like when you see him and what he looks like when you see him in person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of clouds you a little bit, but I get, man, I understand like the people that think that he can't start long-term and making that determination this early. Like I get it. I said it about Ronaldo Lopez two years ago. And that doesn't mean that, you know, these guys are definitely better in the bullpen. Like the stuff plays out, but if they're not going to throw strikes, it's not going to play anywhere. So He's an interesting case. I don't know if you can include Dylan Cease on this opening playoff roster because I don't really know what he does for you personally. But, you know, I think it's going to be an interesting offseason, you know, after the playoffs are over because I do think they're going to be in the market for pitching. And, you know, they just, they're not going to have spots for everybody. So he's, uh, he's definitely one of the more interesting guys to follow, like, going forward. Yeah, he's so confounding, man. Like, I... I... I want to see Dylan Cease. Obviously, everybody wants to see Dylan Cease do well, but he, it seems like pitch by pitch, he is so into his own head about getting everything mechanically correct. He wants the delivery to be the same, the release point to be the same on every pitch that he throws. And if you have that mind, now I'm just assuming based on what I see from him on the mound, like he keeps his composure there. His nonverbals aren't very telling. I think he does a good job with that. He talks about, he talked openly about the way that you know he works in works in and incorporates meditation and he he you know tries to get into that same consistent mental state i think that's important a lot of guys approach dealing with the mental side of pitching differently and i think cease has that down it's just a matter of repeating his mechanics consistently and throwing his stuff for strikes and he hasn't been able to do that despite the fact like you said which i agree 100% his stuff is filthy it's lethal his curveball is one of the best I've ever seen in person. And he's got a hard slider plus a 99 mile an hour fastball plus a decent changeup. So you're talking about a, a complete four pitch repertoire that should get major league pitchers or hitters out, but he's just not based on the fact that he takes forever to get guys out. He, he throws way too many pitches to get the player out. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I want to dive into the whole is Dylan Cease going to be a part of this roster moving forward or not. Let's save that for the offseason because we got plenty of time for that. I just think what you said, too, is important. Where do you incorporate Dylan Cease into the first round of the playoffs? If he's on it, you assume that he's going to be the game three starter. If he's not, what do you do? Yeah, like you would think so. I don't know if you still have him. Pull- do you have like right handed splits? And I could, you know, I could talk through this if you want, but. You know, like I was looking at something on the bullpen and they really don't have a ton of guys in their bullpen that are that have like the platoon advantage, like in a big way. Like they don't have anybody that's way better against righties than lefties. And they they do have a ton of guys in their bullpen that could come on to come in and get lefties out. So, you know, if Dylan Cease has been way better against right handers, like maybe he comes out of the bullpen against a couple of tough righties. But then again, you're trusting him to like not walk anybody out of the bullpen. And I don't really know if you could do that right now. So, you know, if he's not your game three starter, and I don't think he is, um, I think there's probably better uses of those 28 roster spots initially than Dylan Cease. Yeah. So against left handed batters, uh, OPS 873, against righties 760. So it's still kind of yeah, ugly. Yeah, it's better, but it's not great. Yeah. Right. And then the the strikeout-to-walk ratio, 20 strikeouts to 20 walks against lefties, 14 walks to 24 strikeouts against righties, and it's about a 50-plate uh, appearance differential in favor of left-handed batters. So he's walking, you know, it's essentially the same. He's walked more against lefties than he has against righties. The numbers on the surface are better against right-handed batters, but ultimately if you average them out, they're not too different. Uh you know, batting average against 202 against right-handed batters. So, mm-hmm. uh, again, it's not enough. It's not enough for you to say, okay, he's good in this situation, mainly because he just doesn't throw enough strikes. Yeah, and he can't be trusted. Because what did you make of the usage of uh, Ronaldo Lopez today and what that means for, like, the playoff roster? Because, I mean, it was a quick hook, but, you know, it was just kind of weird because it wasn't – he didn't really throw – 
that much. And he definitely didn't have it tonight today, but I didn't know that, you know, I just, I just didn't know how much they wanted to use their bullpen two days before the playoff starts. And they kind of used, you know, pretty much everybody. Well, I just don't think they wanted to let him sit out there and get pounded. I mean, he, uh, let me pull up the box score real quick. An inning and a third, six runs all earned on four hits, three walks, three Ks, two homers allowed. I mean, the guy was just getting rocked across the ballpark, you know? So, at this point of the season, he was just coming off a couple of good outings in a row, too. So you got to give him credit for that. He earned another opportunity to prove himself, especially coming back from injury. But at this point of the season and at this point of his career, I think you understand what you have in Reynaldo Lopez. I think so, too. And I think every couple days, like, we probably flip-flopped on, like, who we wanted to be that Game 3 starter. I think two weeks ago, everybody's like, man, it's Dane Dunning. Like, this guy's ready. This is the guy that it should be. And then a couple of starts later... You know, like I, Lopez, I think, not bad. yeah, I think like if we would have had this conversation like last night before today's start, I would have said that I was more comfortable with Lopez than Dunning or Cease after Lopez's last two outings, and yeah. that's definitely changed again too. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. I, I just, you know, the playoff roster will be interesting. It'll be tomorrow. We'll probably get it um, to see what they do with Reynaldo and Cease because they really don't have. You know, they don't have a ton of like excess bullpen guys that they can like put on the team instead, right? I mean it's it's Zach Birdie. I don't know if you really trust Zach Birdie right now either. And you know, like yeah, when was the last time he what was the last time Zach Birdie pitched in the bitch? Yeah, I know. It's it's been weeks. So that's what I mean. Like you might have Cease and Lopez on the playoff roster just because they allow you to have twenty eight players and you don't you know, you don't really have anybody else. So it'll be uh it'll definitely be interesting. Yeah, I think it's so tough that Gonzalez went down today. And when James, you also mentioned today, and or tomorrow, I should say. We're recording this on the Sunday, game 60 of the MLB regular season. As we release this podcast, of course, you know, playoffs are upcoming. If you're listening to this and they're already happening, evaluate what we just said. Leave a comment, like, subscribe, do all that good stuff. Help us out. We're really you know, trying to provide the best type of White Sox content out here. And... So I, I, when I evaluate this situation, Gio Gonzalez, I felt like, was one of the left-handed pitchers that you could go to for multiple innings. Of course, I think that's, that shouldn't have, shouldn't really be said. But without him, who do you have left-handed? Or even just as a long relief man in general, is it Matt Foster? I think he's your first guy, that, at least for me, that comes to mind. Because without Gonzalez, I thought... You know, despite the production, you can't fault a guy for being bad, right? You can fault a guy for just, well, I guess you can't fault a guy for being bad. <laughs> and Gio Gonzalez was pretty bad at the second half of 2020. But even so, he provides a little bit of bullpen flexibility for Renteria. And now without him, you're left with Carlos Rodon. So I, I think the Gonzalez injury hurts more than people are led on to believe. Yeah, probably. I mean, Jeff Samarjo was DFA'd today. If, yeah, if we want to, you know, we could go down that road again. You know, that was uh, captains of captains of attitude or whatever, uh, right? So, no, I don't know. I mean, that maybe it's Rodon. And it's, I mean, hopefully, you don't need a long guy. You know, I think you're. It's bad news if you do. So, you know, maybe that's where like a Ronaldo Lopez fits in, or or a Dylan Cease. You know, they just become long relievers right now. So, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully, we don't have to see anybody go multiple innings and your you know your first two starters here can go at least six for you and set up the good parts of your bullpen. Sox A's starts Tuesday, September 29th. I'm pumped. White Sox playoff baseball. Three game series, five game series, seven game series. I don't care. Sox are in the postseason. They got to the dance at the end of a campaign that we didn't even expect to happen earlier in in March and April. So I I am so optimistic about the fact that this team can go up against anybody based on the top two starters. Beyond that, it's going to be a battle. But the bullpen, you talk about the importance of a bullpen in the postseason, and the White Sox have that. So with that being said, I believe that the White Sox have a legitimate shot, a good chance, as, as much as anybody, really, to make a legitimate run at the World Series this year. Maybe that's my optimism speaking, but hey, the body of work, why not? Anything can happen in 2020. I think this offense is good enough to compete despite their struggles over the last two weeks. I think, again, Giolito and Keuchel headlining the rotation puts you in a position to win. Oakland A's 
James, how do you feel about the matchup? Let's end the podcast with this conversation. We already touched on it a little bit with Sean Manaya, potentially Frankie Montas, Chris Bassett, Jesus Lazardo, I think, as well, is a part of this conversation. What's your feeling as we approach game one of the wild card round, best of three? So I think it's the best matchup other than, you know, being at home and getting Houston potentially or being at home and getting Toronto. I just think, like, Oakland's good. But, you know, Oakland's only played the teams out West. Oakland has multiple left-handed starters that they count on, you know, and the White Sox are very good against lefties. You know, I, I really don't see Oakland just like changing course and going with Chris Bassett and Frank Montes because the White Sox are better against lefties. Like their best starters are lefties. So I think, I think that's kind of who they'll probably go with. I think we'll see Manaya in game one and then maybe it'll be Bassett. And then after that, who knows? Um, I just feel like, you know, I will take my chances against this team after the White Sox have seen the Twins and Indians 10 times already. I, I didn't want to see either of those teams again in the first round. And they could have beat either of them. You know, they were 5-5 five and five against the Twins this year. They are 2-8 and eight against the Indians, but what, five of those games were, were by like a run or two. So, you know, it's not that they can't beat those teams. I just like kind of wanted to see somebody else. So I think the matchup is favorable. You know, we'll see how much traveling matters. I, I don't really know how much it matters um, without fans, like we've said. That'll be, you know, that, that'll be something there. And then I do think, you know, I think Oakland has the advantage um, in the dugout as far as the manager and the coaching staff's concerned. But I just, I don't know how much that's going to matter in a three-game series. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you. I think the Sox stack up really well against the A's and – for being quite honest, I think that's the most preferable matchup at this point. Maybe the Astros were in, a little enticing, but I'm happy that, of course, they avoided Cleveland. I'm happy that they avoided the Yankees. And call me crazy, but I was ready for a, a Sox-Twins uh, playoff matchup again. But uh, you know what? It's fine. We're good. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with uh, Oakland. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, hey, well, well, James, I'm sure we're going to be covering uh, the White Sox postseason run. Uh, as we have covered the entire 60-game season, even dating back to the start of 2020. So, you know, we'll see how it goes day by day, right? Yeah, and obviously, like, I was optimistic that, you know, they were going to play baseball this year, but, man, this is, like, awesome, the fact that we're here. I mean, if you go back and listen to some of those podcasts that we're, you know, trying to hammer together. And, you know, we had pretty good guests on, but like nobody really knew. And, you know, like they all start the same way. Like, so are we going to have a season? I don't know. Like, let's see what, you know, and it, and they had one, they pulled this off somehow. So, (laughs) you know, and I kind of like, I, you know, I think it might've been David Ross that said like, you know, if they're handing out a trophy, like we might as well win it. And like, I agree. Like it's, you know, here it is like it's time. And I think, you know, regardless if they go down in two or if they win around and then go down, like I do think it'll, it'll do wonders for, you know, some of these young guys that are supposed to be here and supposed to be favorites potentially in the division, like over the next four to five seasons. I do think, you know, this is, you know, we're embarking on something that could be considered like the golden age of, you know, White Sox baseball. Um, And I really believe that. I think if you're looking at, you know, just the organizations like in the division, right? Like over the next five years, like if you could take, major league team, minor league team, you know, and like the financial structure, whatever. Like I think people would be hard pressed to not like choose the White Sox there just because of like all the, all the young cost controlled talent that they currently have. And obviously like this is about this year. Um, but it's, it's the first year of hopefully like many years of, you know, them being in contention and doing this. Really well said. I agree with you hundred percent. I think this is the start of something special over an elongated stretch for the Chicago White Sox, no matter the outcome for the 2020 postseason, this is a successful season for the organization. And I think it's one that Sox fans should celebrate because there's a lot of development going on within, especially their young players that we necessarily weren't necessarily expecting to see uh, at all in 2020. And we're seeing a kid that they drafted, throw 100 miles an hour over and over and over again. How great is that? Yeah, it's something that we've talked about. And like, you know, the White Sox really did us a solid, didn't they? Like we, you know, we had, you know, we talked about like, what are we going to do without a minor league season? Like, it's kind of what we do. And uh, what, 12 or 13 prospect (laughs) debuts later, you know, they saved our butts a little bit. So, 
that that was uh it was it was definitely interesting seeing that many prospect debuts one one i guess final thing here from me um you know another one of those guys who you know i don't think we're going to see another prospect debut but i do think andrew vaughn um is and i think it's been reported now that he will be on the white Sox play like so it's a player pool just like the 60 man player pool for the season there's a 40 player playoff pool so you have 40 players that you can choose the 28 from now, you know, if they were to play Andrew Vaughn in a game, they would still need to add him to the 40 man roster and play him in a baseball game. I, I think that's unlikely. Um, but I've been wrong a whole bunch this year. So who knows, but I do think he's one of the options. He'll travel to Oakland, I think with the team and take part in the workouts. And he's one of your potential options. Like, you know, as, as one of the guys that's like with the group basically. And we'll just, I guess, see what happens um, as far as he's concerned. I think it's very important that you mentioned that. And I appreciate it. You did because, and also the way you laid it out, it's great because it's, uh, it's another matter of, Hey, this is a kid who's around major league talent that you assume is going to be a part of the core group that helps the White Sox ultimately win a world championship. And for him to be exposed to all of, all of this talent, uh, and, and to partake in this sort of experience only does positive for his growth and development. And you also got to consider too, on the Vaughn thing, he's seeing live pitching from essentially major league talent all summer long in Schaubert. He's seeing live pitching, maybe not in game situations, but he's seeing guys who are trying to get outs. who are trying to prove themselves to the organization. So, you know, this is a guy who is game ready, right? Don't think about Vaughn as, okay, he's got to get acclimated. No, like he's been, he's good. His timing's there. He's been working out consistently in Schaumburg. I think it's very important to mention Vaughn. I lean on the side of, yeah, I, I doubt it. I doubt we see Andrew Vaughn in the postseason, but it's awesome that we're even having this conversation. It's awesome that we get to speculate about a player like Andrew Vaughn, because I've said this before. I think he's going to be there. The White Sox best hitter once he's uh, essentially established in the lineup, because he is just, he is so damn good, James. He's very good. And I, th- you know, I think the Encarnacion thing is the reason why we haven't seen him. I think in a year like this, it's easy to say like, oh, you can't jump the guy from high A. But I think that that's kind of hasn't been true this year. And I think, you know, I've been to Schaumburg twice and other people have been there and he's clearly like the best guy there, right? I just think they truly didn't have a spot to play him. They didn't want to dump Edwin Encarnacion, even though he struggled, you know, real bad. He's, he's got a good relationship with some of the younger, uh, like Hispanic guys. He, you know, he grew up, he knows, uh, Eloy Jimenez. I just think they didn't want to cut the court on Encarnacion. And that's really the only way that Andrew Vaughn fit this year. I, I think, you know, him playing at third or playing in right fields, probably super unrealistic. Like he's a first baseman, he's a good first baseman, but he's probably first base DH. You know, and as long as you have these two catchers, Abreu and Encarnacion, there's just probably not playing time for them. Yeah, a lot of a lot of really good stuff, James. As always, really appreciate you taking the time. Let's let's wrap things up. Mention one final thing: the White Sox finished the season and uh, are awarded the 22nd overall draft pick, James. I know you tweeted that today, which is the Sunday of the final regular season um, day of 2020 for Major League Baseball. So, real quick, let's touch on that: the 22nd pick. For the White Sox in the 2021 draft, we 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 know there are multiple reports that are saying that the draft is being shrunk from 40 rounds to a minimum of 20. So I, that's that's a new development here, but also it's important to mention as we look far ahead to next season, the Sox are in the bottom 10 teams picking. That means they're pretty darn good. Yeah. So I've you know I've never covered a draft where they've picked this this far back. So. My first one, you know, I think that I've wrote for Future Sox was 2016 when they took Zach Collins. So, you know, they've they've been picking pretty high. This is going to be different for me. Like I do the the uh, the podcast with Josh Nelson over at um, Sox Machine, and I haven't really talked to him yet about what we're going to yeah. do. Like, are we going to be on the air for the whole first three hours? So, Probably. you know, the draft is a little bit different. It's going to be in July. It's All Star Weekend. They're they're trying to incorporate it all and make it like you know, or one big All Star Week. I guess, which will be interesting. So, you know, future Sox will have you covered in the lead up. Hopefully there's college baseball this spring and we'll get a, you know, get a look yeah. at some guys that could be there um, for the white Sox. But it, you know, it'll be a lot different because when you're picking 22, who knows, like, it, you know, there's, 
there's a whole, you know, this year, I think Mike Shirley said he had 15 guys for any, they picked 11th. So maybe he'll have 30 guys next year. I don't know. Like, yeah, know, so we'll here at future sacks, we're going to have to cover every single one, I guess. Right. Yeah, the, Just so the, write them all up. The Houston Astros scandal though, did uh move, it moved the white Sox up one pick and probably like $500,000 in their bonus pool in the first round. So thanks Houston. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Nice. Uh, nice little mention there, James. Thanks so much for taking the time. Good stuff as always. Yeah, it was good, man. This is fun. Yeah, let's look forward to White Sox playoff baseball. Thanks so much for being a supporter of FutureSox.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Like, subscribe, share, do your thing. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and all that good stuff. Wherever podcasts, you get your podcasts. Check us out. Search Future Socks and listen and check out our entire library. We've had some pretty decent guests on this year. But White Sox, Oakland A's, Tuesday, September 29th. We'll see what comes of the White Sox in the postseason in 2020. First time we could say that they are in the playoffs since 2008. That is something to celebrate. All right. For James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. We'll talk to you all next time.